Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage. In last week's programme, director, broadcaster and actress Crystal Kwok chatted to me about her childhood and early film career, both in front of and behind the camera. In this week's programme, she tells me about a documentary she's making about Chinese women who grew up in the southern states of the United States with Chinese families who ran grocery stores. Among Crystal's interviews was her aunt, her late grandmother and a cousin who married an African-American. The documentary has the working title Not Black and White and is the story of race relations, grocery stores, segregation and how young Chinese women navigated the confinement of their lives and the arranged marriages to men chosen by their parents. Yeah, so I've always been fascinated by my grandmother being so Chinese, but yet having this funny southern accent that I didn't really know where it came from. And I've always had this relationship with her where we would sit for tea, or actually we had wine and cheese when I was older, and she would tell me little stories about her, how she stole money from the register to run away, or how she dated this <laughs> white guy. I'm like, what? Where's all this? So I just had to do this, and it's just been kind of a, a story. It's been in the back of my head for years. So finally, I've decided to do it. And in searching just a simple, what had started to be a very personal story, unleashed this whole underlying, entangled, important history of how the race relations between the Chinese and the black community, that's just never told. Nobody knew about that. And, and what it reflected about American history in general and what the Chinese position was in this past. So tell me about your documentaries. You focus very much on uh, the idea of the women in your family, yes. but then the wider women of Chinese heritage who then lived in the southern states of the U.S. Right. In my past, in my career past, I've always tried to explore and bring a voice to women or socially sensitive issues that relate to women. And so for my grandmother's story, the fact that she ran away, the fact that they had such a confining and strict and traditional environment, how do they go about maneuvering their daily lives as teenage girls, as one does? I don't think that women back then didn't have passions and desires to see what was outside their confinement, right? And so as I dug, yes, lo and behold, with the stories that my grand aunts would tell me, it was fascinating that they were so real. They were girl stories that people think, oh, in those days they just stayed home and they listened and they did, you know, all the stuff they were expected to do. But no. <laughs> now, you live in Hawaii, but your grandmother was born in the U.S. in 1922. But when did her family come to the U.S.? So her parents left in 1911. In fact, through the archives, I was able to find an actual copy of the passenger tickets on the boat from Hong Kong to San Francisco because they had to go through here. And, and where were they coming from? So the exact village is the area is called Dunsing, and I've located the actual town town or whatever you call that, the, the little tiny place. It's called Gumtong uh, Chun, tiny little place for the southern Chinese. This place was famous for their lychee trees, apparently, and a lot of them had herbal stores. And I don't know if that had anything to do with the fact that my grandmother knows how to make Chinese soups, because I know how because of her. <laughs> Oh, that's a great heritage. So she was born in the U.S. in 1922. Can you Now, you knew her well into your adulthood. I yes. mean, she, she lived to age... 99, yeah. shy of 100, just like two months, yeah. And uh, can you describe her to me? Oh, my. I was the one to do the eulogy at her memorial, which was only recently, a couple of months ago. And my favorite story of her 
or an image of her when she was as grandma was this one Christmas when we had this huge tree that was too big to stick into the stand. This was in San Francisco. So my father pathetically tried to take a saw and saw off and thin it and so he could put it back in, but he it was it wasn't getting anywhere. So my grandmother just took the saw from his hand and goes, Give that to me, Kirby. And she started sewing away and she sawed it down quickly and we put the tree in and she was just so, she was such a superwoman. And then afterwards, after Christmas, she would take that whole tree and chuck it out the side window to fall down into the garbage can below. So she was a woman of strength in incredible ways. She was always leading the family and she had the decadence to have boxes of champagne downstairs for when we had parties and we would go out for wine and cheese and and yet she was so traditional. She was always Chinese and family oriented. Nobody knew that she ran away when she was 18. Yeah, so let's go back to that. So she, as we said, she was born in 1922 and so born in San Francisco. So how come that your grandmother's family then moves down south? Okay, so historically, during that time in the 20s, there was kind of a niche market, if you will. I always say kind of American history or African-American history 101 is that after slavery and then they had all the plantation owners and they had commissaries that were run by white people and they just didn't want to do business with the black people anymore and so the Chinese found that market and the ones who were there already called on all their relatives and friends, mostly from San Francisco at the time, said, come over, there's opportunities. And so my great-grandfather at the time uprooted his whole family and went to Georgia. So mostly running like grocery stores? Yes, so they all opened up grocery stores in the heart of the black neighborhood, and they were quite a few in Augusta. They were, I mean, literally like one on every block at, at one point in the 30s. And these would all be run by Chinese. Chinese. Yeah. And so the, these children who grew up in these family stores would have to get off school, go and work the store. And then after working the store, they would have Chinese school. And then after Chinese school, they'd come back and have to do more stuff in the store. So their whole life was just, I remember my grandaunt saying, it was three things, eat, sleep, work. And that's how she reduced her whole childhood. They finished school in seventh grade, the older kids, because that's all they were allowed to go to. And then they, their whole life was working the store until their parents arranged for a marriage for them with a suitable, nice Chinese man. Yeah, very confined. Yeah, so again, I always reflect on today's women. How, how do they feel? How, how would we feel growing up being arranged and not having the choices? And how do you go about maneuvering those little desires that make you human? And when you are attracted to somebody that you know you can't be with, what do you do as girls do? And it's just it just brings the human side of history out. So what did your grandmother used to do? Oh my gosh. So my favorite story is when she actually snuck out to see this white boy for a little date. But of course, because the family wouldn't allow her to date anyone non-Chinese. Anyway, they weren't allowed to date in general. So they would sneak out to movies and tell the parents that they were going to see a movie, but they were actually going out with boys. But the one story that I remember is that because she couldn't find a place to have a date with him is that her black neighbor that I guess she was friends with set up a nice romantic I guess I'm imagining in my head a candlelight dinner in her garden or backyard. <laughs> and so you've got the whole system in this one scene, right? You've got the segregated structure of your black neighbor and this white boy who's intrigued by this exotic Asian, I'm guessing too, that he knows that he can't really have or she knows she can't really date, all in the confines of the backyard because it's secret. It has to be. 
So this is all happening in Augusta, Georgia. Uh, within these communities, I mean, did the Chinese very much keep to themselves or was there community overlap with the black community there? So in my process of uh, research, it's quite interesting because my family particularly were the ones who built their walls high. They didn't encourage them and they didn't allow them to interact you kept them as customers, you know, the relationship was very clean. But there were some community members, Chinese, who allowed their children to play in the backyards with their black neighbors. And that's what distinguished quite clearly how the dynamics turned out to be. Because there was this big riot in 1970. It was an event that ended the grocery stores because the riots destroyed all the Chinese grocery stores in that area at the time. But a couple were left standing. And why were they left standing? So when I interviewed some people, it was the ones who were good to their neighbors, and they said, don't touch this store. So what goes around comes around, right? It's really interesting. Absolutely. Um, but you're saying that your family built the walls high. Would that have been even more frowned upon if there had been any kind of relationship with other black children? Yeah, so they didn't even allow it. All the sisters would say, no, we just weren't allowed to. We just didn't interact with them. We were nice to them, but they were separate. So they had no black friends. To me, it was like, how could you not allow this segregated situation to uh, not bother you or did you not question it and they said they didn't and to me that doesn't make sense i guess you're living in a different era yes i guess so yeah now how were uh, i mean when you look at so if you, we look at augusta georgia so you've got these different communities living there and these big racial divides yeah. how were the chinese communities perceived by the other communities so in my family they went to white schools and yet they lived in a black neighborhood. So this kind of a blurry, peculiar situation already says a lot, because then I asked um, some of the African-American older residents how they felt about the Chinese being able to go to a privileged school and yet coming back to their neighborhood. And they knew it was kind of like a hierarchy, right? It, they just knew that they sided more with the white side. And in the theaters, they went to sit downstairs with the white audience, and they drank from the white fountains mostly. But this was in Augusta, in Georgia, and so every state was different. So there was a big pocket of Chinese in Mississippi, and those Mississippian Chinese had to go to black schools if they were to live there. They were not considered white. So every state had its own kind of rules. And so the Chinese in those places would send their kids to a different state where they were allowed to go to a white school. They would never send their kids to black schools. Now, in Augusta, Georgia, where your relatives had their grocery store, what were they selling? So it was kind of a, you know, a general store for most of the basic supplies. They did bring in Chinese products from San Francisco that they sold to the Chinese community within their own. So my grandmother and her sisters remember riding a bicycle and delivering groceries to the different families sometimes when they, they had some black errand boys, but they did it too. The African-Americans would often go there for like a sandwich in between their work times. And Chinese being so resourceful, my great-grandmother would take meat from the soup that she made, leftover meat from the bones. She would peel off of the bones like a pulled pork kind of thing and I guess dress it up and she made sandwiches out of the leftover soup meat and sold it at the deli, which I guess was kind of a good thing. It was it was a popular item. And uh, so that's how they worked, how, how resourceful they were and using what they had and just finding ways to do business with them. But I wanted to say the one unique thing that the Chinese and the blacks had in terms of the relationship with the store is that the Chinese understood that the blacks did not have money. They were very good about letting them buy things on credit. 
And I got this from both sides of the story. They both just deeply, this was a very special, unique relationship because the whites would never do that. So they would say, okay, you pay me at the end of the month when you have money. And oftentimes they would have to itemize the, you know, what they bought. But my great-grandmother didn't speak a word of English or write, so she would just write the word item and just have an amount on that piece of scrap paper. And that's how they did the bookkeeping. But it was a trust system, right? And that was the warmth of that relationship in that context of understanding each other's economic situation. So you've got that grocery store there. Now, other aspects of living in America at that time, I remember hearing about sort of an anti-Chinese law. How did that impact on your family? Okay, so the Chinese Exclusion Act was in 1882, so it was a little bit before their time, but even then there were little loopholes and they had distinguished different uh, status. So if you were a student or a merchant, you were not bound by this law. And so the grocery store owners were considered merchants, and so my great-grandfather was allowed to go back, and uh, or many of the others were able to bring their wives over. And so they didn't have that, and yet they understood their position and the Chinese again being survivalists I think throughout history is that they understood that silence is a valuable asset and that's how they survived it's not like the African Americans who revolted and wanted to show how angry they were the Chinese would just keep quiet keep reserved and just keep to yourselves you know that was the mentality in survival now your documentary so you go around various relatives various people in mm. augusta how, so tell me about how you made the documentary so what i find interesting but complex at the same time is that it's it's the process itself that's unveiling as i go for example in the several different times i've went there to interview relatives or the african american residents at one point i had an asian camera person the first time and then one time i had a caucasian white lady she was a filmmaker from savannah and the third time i had um, african-american crew what i find interesting is how people might have reacted differently because of the fundamental color of the crew and how that impacted how they told their stories and so that's part of it you know we take so much for granted that what we see is what it is but in the moment of interviewing <laughs> ah the framing outside the frame right the last time I interviewed my grand aunt, and because we had a black crew, she suddenly got up to leave. Now, I interviewed her before with my white camera person and my Chinese camera person, and she loved to talk about her life. Now, maybe it's too presumptuous of myself, but I, my instinct is to say that she was not comfortable when my black crew went and put the mic on her dress. Because afterwards she's like, oh, what are we, what are we doing here? And then also she's, I, I gotta go, I gotta go. And she just got up and left. And it was really interesting. And I asked the camera crew, I went and reversed the lens and asked them how they felt about their position being black and how that affects how they work even today. And yes, they're very aware of this. But I asked them if they think that people would answer differently because of the impact of who they are. And they think that, well, if they really had something to say, they would. They thought. Now that's interesting, isn't it? Just um, the different, as you say, it's multi layered how people react to certain scenarios. Your documentary is how long? So you're putting it all together now? Yeah. Or? So I wanted to just add in the fact that I'm back in school doing a doctorate in this um, area called performance studies, and a lot of people don't know what that is. And it's really a performative lens on something. So it's more cultural studies or anthropological or something like that. But for me, how race performs or how identity or women perform is a really 
fascinating way to look into their lives. And so, or even how does a documentary perform? And that's why I say the process of my filming is part of the project because I'm excavating and learning as I go how this all works. And that should be a part of it because it's not literally not black and white for one thing, the Chinese position. And then on the level of filming, you can't frame something without understanding the context of that situation and why that person shared what they shared. And you have to kind of dig into all the different layers of that behind it. It's not what they say is the truth necessarily. And, and so there's so many things to weave together into this. You know, my, when I was growing up, my dad always said, just sharpen one knife. There's a Chinese term that says, which means you just sharpen one knife. And I used to always say to him, Dad, I don't have one knife. I have a Swiss Army knife. I have different things I need to use. And I feel like my film reflects that. I can't reduce it to just a woman, a woman's story. Or it's not just a Chinese-American story. It's a story through the women that tell about a racialized history. Or to reverse it, it's like a, a framing or a, a study of framing through the women's stories and how history is revealed. And it's just, for me, you can't unpack it because you're never just one thing. Mm. Yes, I mean, you, you know, you can talk about it, you can talk to your own identity with that. And also for me, before you mentioned to me about your documentary, I have to say for me, the experience of those with Chinese heritage in America, it was a, a North American experience. It, for me, it's San Francisco. It's, it's, it's also East Coast. Early on, it's the railway and the gold. And, yes. uh, and then later on, yeah, very, very Northern. The idea of basically living in the South, yeah. uh, these communities, I just didn't know about because it. Because they're untold stories. And so if I want to go back to why I chose to focus on the unruly women is because this approach breaks down that conventional narrative like what, how history is supposed to be told. Oh, so this isn't about the railroad. Not all Chinese came from those laboring stories. Oh, well, these were not normal girls who had normal desires. And so by disrupting that dominant kind of way that we've always been brought up to understand about our histories, that for me is the important way of unveiling what we should be kind of looking at. Now tell me about your grandmother, your aunt, they're all southern bells in, yes. in terms of their style of dress, in, in terms of, to a certain extent, yeah, their, their, their lifestyle. Yes. So can you describe your aunt to me? Well, I have her quite a bit in my film, and she, first of all, has gobs of makeup on, you know, her, her and it's like blue eyeshadow and, and red lipstick and tons of mascara and it's just, and this poofy hairstyle. And she has, I was noticing all of these jewelry, these diamonds and things that she wore and high heel shoes. She always wore high heel shoes. But this was her character and this is her personality. She had, she, had, she was like a little Barbie doll. She just loved to dress up and be escorted to go dancing with her gentleman callers. And that was a very, and when you hear her speak, and you don't look at her face, you really wouldn't think it was a Chinese. There's no way you would place a Chinese face with that voice. And so again, the, the cultural identities that are embedded literally in their face and in their voices, in their bodies, is, uh, is another layer of exploration, right? The embodiment of culture in the way they present themselves. Were you told not to do it? <laughs> well, I was criticized for many aspects. For example, why am I not focusing on the accomplishments of the, of the Chinese and what they gave to the society and who went to which school to be the first 
professor of this and the first of that. That's not my story. I'm talking with Crystal Cork about her documentary. You're putting it together, so you've had these film crews, you've been talking to people from a variety of uh, communities and, and including your own relatives, and um, now you need some funding to finish off. Oh, my. You know, I am so pathetic with this, and I don't understand why, as filmmakers and creative, just people who want to tell stories have to do this, but it's <laughs> painful. So, yes... I am in deeply need of funds to honestly to um, to just cover the ex- expenses of. of uh, uh, let me just tell you, you know, honestly, is a an average feature length documentary in the states will cost no less than about two to two fifty grand, two hundred fifty grand U.S. And I've been funding this myself, honestly, as far as I've gone. I, I have a part time job at school, and I've been doing this, but uh, and I'm applying for grants, but you know. I, I really believe in the story, and the story needs to be told. So, But, yes, I don't know how to ask for money. <laughs> <laughs> Your grandmother is you know, being born in 1922 in San Francisco. I mean, you know, in terms of her, both her American and her Chinese heritage, she's very Chinese, as yes. you've described. I mean, she's only just recently passed away at the age of 99. Um, so, yeah, tell me, within, you know, we were saying about it, within the grocery shop, you sell, a, there's a whole variety of items. But within, were the Chinese communities, did they remain very Chinese, or did you have a situation where they're also doing frying chicken alongside uh, more normal Cantonese fare? So when I grew up, my grandmother had always made fried chicken, and I always, my grandmother's fried chicken was the best. And I sourced her recipe, and I, you know, it's like my best kept secret. But I always thought that was a southern fried chicken that she had created based on her southern influences. But I think, yes, the fried chicken part was the south, but the marinade was Chinese because she marinated it with wine and ginger and garlic and soy sauce. That's a very Chinese thing. And I think it was more an influence of her time in Chinatown or or people who had that um, kind of a thing. Because my more southern relatives who lived in the south and did not live in San Francisco, they don't use that marinade. They use the African-American marinade, (laughs) which is the buttermilk version. So it's funny through food how you can track heritage. For example, I asked a lot of people of their favorite foods, and sometimes things like pig's feet would always come up, both on the Chinese side and on the black side. And they sold that in the stores. They said these pickled pig's feet was like one of the top-selling things in the store for both, both communities, you know. Interesting, yeah. But also with the, the whole um, sense of identity, at the beginning, you're describing how your grandmother, I mean, pretty tough life, actually. You know, she went to school till seventh grade, and then she's home helping with the shop, but also another slew of Chinese language to, to instill that Chinese culture in her. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems in your family, some uh, embraced that, and some rejected it. Right. So I have one relative that I had recently uh, become acquainted with. I never knew her before, maybe because of this fact that she had married an African-American um, I don't know how much she was shunned, but it was pretty obvious that she never became integrated into the main family. And uh, she said that her mother, being my grandmother's sister, never embraced her Chinese culture. So even though they had Chinese food every day, every meal, she would go to the back and eat her sandwiches after everybody ate. So you have, you know, some of them who did that, who just did not embrace it. And there are people like my grandmother who just took it on and 
continued it and why I still embrace my Chinese culture, I think is deeply related to my grandmother. Because when I was in college, I would call her up and say, how do I make this Chinese soup? And she would tell me which herbs to put in and how to make it. But that was me wanting to have it. Uh, none of my siblings did that. So what is the time span? I mean, obviously you're talking to people nowadays, but um, what sort of elements of history are you looking at in life? So it starts with when they went there, and really when they were teenagers, it was the late 1930s. But because my grandmother left shortly after that, I continued the research with the people who remember it from, you know, all the way up to the 50s and 60s because it was segregated until 1967 in most places. And so they have the same stories. And to dig into that, it, it, it spans quite a bit, but at the same time, it's still part of the same narrative. People may not know this, but I love this fun fact <laughs> that um, James Brown is from, well, was from Augusta, Georgia. And he, in fact, was a, an errand boy for one of the Chinese stores. And I went to, and I found his daughter, had an interview with her, and she confirmed it. And um, it's like, wow, we are so connected to the black community, we have no idea. I mean, that is a pretty intimate relationship. And in fact, James Brown, when he became famous, he the daughter remembered him bringing a Rolex back to that store to present it to the family because he was grateful for the opportunity to give him a chance to earn a little bit of money. Now, the 1930s, of course, are the Depression. So, I mean, did your grandma uh, talk about that at all? She did, and she was very resourceful, and she learned how to sew, and she made her, they, they, they made dresses themselves. But going into the pre-war uh, tensions, I think this is also important in bringing in the Chinese culture, is that they, these Chinese uh, communities in the South, would, they had this movement called the Bowl of Rice or Rice Bowl Movement, where they would raise funds to send back to China. So I grew up in San Francisco. I was born in San Francisco. I always wondered why my grandmother had a southern accent and what her past was. And as I learned through her stories, not only did she sneak out, perhaps, she ran away. And originally she moved to Florida to go to a beauty school, she claimed. So she, she absolutely ran away from the shop in Augusta oh, permanently? Yes, she never looked back. How old was she? 18 years old Asian girl. That's why I had to tell this story. How does an 18-year-old Asian girl in the black neighborhood of the segregated South run away. What are, how did she get the means to do that? And so she told me, she remembers taking money from the cash register from time to time. So she must have planned and calculated. So every time her father was away doing something else and she ran the, the cash register, she would take money out. And so at one point when she had enough, and also she had, she also strategically um, bought herself very nice fancy outfits because she thought people would respect her more and think she was more mature than she really was to run away. So she when what did she share with you about what she was running away from? She said, as I recall before she had dementia, that it was not a life that should be lived. It wasn't something any girl should be put through. That's what she said, something like that. It was too much. It was not just the endurance of, of running the family store. It was nothing like that. It was the confinement, the isolation, the lack of freedom, and all that combined. And the, you know, the arranged marriage and everything. It's just she didn't have her own voice. So she arrives in San Francisco. After running away to Florida to beauty school. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a chapter nobody knows anything about. But she stayed there for a few months, and then she had a sister who lived in San Francisco because she was married already. So she moved there to stay with her. Now, at that point, she wanted to go home to visit her parents, but her mother said, you don't come back unless you get married. Again, that mother with her fixture of her, you know, the, the whole marriage thing. So 
her sister had a good friend who was a secretary of my grandfather and introduced him. And then in two weeks, she got married. She says, I want to go home. So she just married him. And I asked her if she ever loved him. She says, no, I learned to. And that's what they did then. You learn to love someone. Or even if you never did, you just deal with what you're given. Tough. <laughs> it's like, man, I'm so glad I didn't grow up then. So she goes back? She goes back after she has my mom, but that's when her father already passed away and she didn't get to see him. So she doesn't go to her, she isn't able to go to her father's funeral? No. So she goes back and she stays the rest of her life in San Francisco. What was your grandmother's name? Mercedes Pearl. I love it. Isn't it wonderful? <laughs> yeah. Mercedes Pearl. That's lovely. Yeah. And uh, um, in terms of, uh, I mean, you're saying that she had dementia before before she died for a number of years. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you think she'd make of your documentary? Hmm. Well, she's always been proud of me for my voice, and so I think she'd be tickled by it. I, I think she knew that I've always wanted to do this, so she'd be proud, yeah. My thanks to Crystal Kwok, talking there on her documentary, Not Black and White, for which she's currently looking for funding. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage.